The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, a reporter at Market Watch, and I'm really pleased to have with us today uh, Terry Haynes. He's a veteran Washington analyst and founder of Pangea Policy. Terry, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Vic. Thank you for having me. Our goal is to talk about what the House Speaker drama could mean for markets, so let's dig right into that. Uh, It's now been more than three weeks since Kevin McCarthy was ousted as Speaker of the Republican-controlled House. Congressman Mike Johnston of Louisiana um, is now the fourth nominee for Speaker uh, by Republicans, and he might actually get the job shortly. Um, So just for starters, uh, what do you think all this House drama um, over the Speakership uh, means for investors? Well, it has, uh, you know, it has obviously uh, large political implications and implications for how the House generally and the House Republicans are viewed by the public. Uh, for markets, I think it's a, I think it's a minor negative, but I don't think it's a uh, by itself is a huge negative. Uh, it comes at a bad time, though. You know, the background of all this is that uh, these are things I've been writing about for some time. Is you know, you've got the, the highest degree of geopolitical risk in markets for 50 years. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I take the uh, take away the maybe that Jamie Dimon was talking about a couple of weeks ago and say is because the 1973 Yom Kippur War uh, featuring many of the same uh, folks in the in the Middle East uh, was the last time you actually had superpower confrontation. Uh, with even a, uh, a nudging up of the uh, the nuclear readiness uh, on on both the United States and the Soviet side, so uh, you know we're we're in a very fraught situation, and we already were with uh, with lots and lots of different sorts of Chinese geopolitical risk with the Ukraine Russia uh, war going on, which is quite a big one on its own, and uh, and uh, the Iranian saber rattling and a bunch of other things, so. To have this happen at the same time that there's geopolitical risk tends to feed that negative a little bit more. Secondly, I'd also say that uh, I think this is something that's completely unappreciated in political Washington. But markets are starting to turn for the first time in about 40 or 50 years uh, and become much more concerned about United States deficit, United States debt and the degree of United States fiscal spending uh, than they have been uh, you know, since the 70s or 80s. And uh, and political Washington doesn't get that at all. The, uh, you know, what markets are looking for uh, is, is something fairly substantial that, that shows that Washington's paying attention to those things uh, and not trying to let them run amok. Meanwhile, what political Washington is fighting about is basically whether or not there should be a cut of 1% in the 30% of discretionary spending uh, that, you know, to go back to two fiscal years ago, uh, or not, uh, and you know, a drop in the bucket compared to the market concerns. Uh, so, house dysfunction on top of that is a negative because it shows, you know, inattention to uh, the the fiscal issues that confront the, the the country right now. 
Um, so we're hoping to get some reader questions. I'd like to remind, uh, should say viewer questions. I'd like to remind folks to submit questions um, as you're following along here. We've gotten some already um, from, uh, there's one from Macha. Uh, he says, do you think uh, this House Speaker drama will lead to a government shutdown? Hi, Macha. Um, you know, I had been kind of first in the first in the markets by saying that I thought the uh, when McCarthy was deposed that uh, a shutdown ratcheted up to as high as 80 percent likely. Uh, but I also thought and said uh, at least a week ago uh, and keep repeating it is that the longer this drama goes, paradoxically, the the more that the shutdown uh, possibility goes down. The reason for that is, uh, you know, apparently uh, the House generally, House Republicans specifically, can't walk and chew gum at the same time. So what you've had, what you have is a situation where uh, they haven't been doing work on the appropriations bills they need to work on. Uh, so they don't really have anything in the pipeline. Uh, so what they, you know, on the backs of this last three weeks of dysfunction, what they're going to have to do, and there seems to be a general understanding that they have to do this, what they're going to have to do is extend existing funding past November 17th uh, for a period of months to allow them to finish the job. So net net uh, shutdown risk is still probably in the 20 to 30 percent range, but it's much less than it was just a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Um, well, what do you think the, the worst case scenario is for markets? Um, and then on the flip side, I guess the, the best case scenario um, in, in, terms um, of, in terms of what's going on in the House and, and well, how it all well, plays the, out. Well, 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 the best case scenario is you get some sort of speaker, whether it's uh, the, the current Republican nominee, Mike Johnson, or somebody else. Uh, and uh, and you get a an extension of... Uh, of spend of current spending, what's called in Washington speak, a continuing resolution or a CR that just continues existing levels uh, for a period of months. Uh, you get that at least you get a minor uh, you get a minor positive out of the idea that uh, there's going to be consistent funding for the next few months, and uh, and and politically the situation doesn't uh, doesn't implode. The worst case scenario would be one in which. Republicans still can't uh, come up with a speaker nominee for, say, the next three weeks or so. And that's how long it, it is till November 17th. And there, and as a result of that, there's some sort of government shutdown uh, because that in the middle of the geopolitical and the fiscal problems that I uh, described earlier uh, would make uh, would make the political would, would make the political situation redound in a much more negative way. So I think that's probably the worst case. Now, I mean, so what do you think's most likely? I mean, there's it seems like there's a real chance that the House actually will elect Mike Johnson speaker today. Um, what do you think is uh, we talked about worst case, best case? What about sort of what's the what's the most likely thing uh, that's going to happen this week, next week? Sure. I've, I've been guessing well, so <laughs> I'll try to keep guessing and uh, try to keep doing well. Uh, my guess is that. Uh, you know, either you have uh, Mr. Johnson uh, becoming speaker this week uh, and, you know, they basically have till Friday and then they'll go away for the weekend and regroup if they're exhausted. Uh, so they'll either have Mr. Johnson, but that, you know, counting the votes uh, is, is it, you have to be almost in the room in order to figure out exactly what, you know, where the votes are here. There's going to there's a lot of horse trading among different factions within the party. Uh, a lot of promises are being made right now on all sides about what will get taken up, how, when, uh, why, and, uh, and you know, things that Johnson may be able to do to facilitate things. Uh, so, 
you know, the, the body language right now, as you say, Vic, is uh, I think is good uh, for Johnson. But if they don't have Johnson this week, they probably end up with uh, the, the current temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry, next week. Uh, because then exhaustion would, would have really kicked in and uh, they'll just say, you know what, we've got a temporary speaker for a while. Let's just all, all uh, to make sure that to say that he can he can do the basic powers of the office and we all need to move forward. Uh, and then on and then what you get within the next couple of weeks is a uh, is a temporary spending extension, uh, you know, past the first of the year uh, that keeps everything on the same keel at the same levels. Uh, and things from a market's perspective, anyway, things go quiet uh, in Washington for the next few months, except for what they expect, which is that uh, there will be some kind of major aid package for uh, for Israel, for Ukraine, uh, for the border, a variety of other things. That that would be that'd be where I'd end up with that. But I will also caution that I, I think the aid package doesn't come about until pretty much the end of the calendar year. Um, so, I mean, many people probably have been Googling Mike Johnson uh, in the last 24 or 48 <laughs> hours. What do you think um, investors should know about him? Um, yeah, you know, we, we know he was elected in 2016. Uh, he used to be chair of the Republican Study Committee, which is an influential conservative group. Um, but sort of what are your bullet points for um, here's what investors should know about Mike Johnson? Uh you know, my my bullet points are, are, are really come down to one. And uh, and I don't mean or imply to be unkind to Mr. Johnson at all. But what markets need to know about Mr. Johnson is that they don't need to know very much about Mr. Johnson. Uh, the without going into a full blown history lesson, you know, the, the what the speaker is varies by Congress, varies by which majority or which group of members that end up electing a speaker. Sometimes speakers are super majority leaders. And, uh, you know, that was the case, say, with uh, with John Boehner. Paul Bryan, to some extent, was looked at that way. Uh, but on the other hand, what you had in Jim Wright uh, and Sam Rayburn for the Democrats in the 20th century, what you have. Uh, but what you also can have is a situation where uh, speakers exist uh, to be elected by coalitions within their own party. And the party structure ends up being more important than who the speaker is. And I think that's where we are now. Uh, you know, what I what I said a week ago and, and still would have said yesterday when uh, did say yesterday when Mr. Emmer was uh, was voted out is that uh, not having Scalise fail, having Jordan fail, having Emmer fail was was bad for uh, for the Republican uh, leadership structure because rejection made those people look relatively weak. But now when you get to a situation where you you need a coalition candidate that kind of comes out of nowhere, relatively speaking, and that's what we have in Johnson, what you have is the party organization and the party leadership reinvigorated to some extent. So who becomes the most important in some sense really isn't Johnson. It's that uh, people like Scalise and Emmert and Jordan, uh, you know, kind of have their own uh, semi-deflated balloons uh, reinflated again. Uh, so what you should expect out of all this and out of Johnson's uh, ascension, uh, should it happen, is that uh, what you'll end up seeing is uh, the party end up marked the the Republican Party in the House uh, continue to march forward pretty much as it did before, continue to insist on some sort of fiscal uh, discipline, continue to push forward on the Biden investigations, 
And beyond that, uh, not really very much. The, between now and the end of the Congress, pretty much all you're going to see is you're going to see uh, wrangling around on relatively small differences on spending packages, as I said before. You're going to see the Biden investigations continue, and Jordan probably has uh, more energy on that rather than less uh, as a result of what happened. Uh, and you're going to see uh, continued oversight, and you're going to see the uh, the aid packages on Israel and Ukraine and the like uh, go forward. And that's going to be pretty much it for this Congress. Uh, you know, they they're already in uh, in kind of election mode, and they certainly will be by by spring of next year. Uh, so, uh, you know, anything anybody else is looking for from this Congress generally in this House specifically, I think, uh, you know, they're about all done. I, great. I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the elections uh, next year, but I, there's a mm -hmm. reader question from Angela, and I'd like to remind um, viewers, sorry, viewers, not readers, uh, that uh, please submit questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can, um, pose them to Terry. Uh, Angela says, uh, does it matter which party holds the majority when it comes to electing the speaker? Um, and, you know, I guess maybe part of what she's getting at there is it's just difficult for anyone to be a speaker when there's such a ma narrow majority. I wonder if you could tackle her question. Yeah, sure. Um, does it matter? Um, marginally, marginally it matters. Uh, you know, as I say, uh, the, the speaker generally is the, uh, you know, is, is, has generally the last half century, let's say, has, has generally been elected solely by whichever parties in the majority of the House. Uh, so, uh, but, so, you know, which in one sense, it matters whether the House is Democrat or Republican because the party priorities and the priorities, the, the policy priorities of leadership will be different. Uh, but uh, to, to assume that the speaker himself, herself, has a, uh, an outsized impact on what those policies might be from the party, I think, is, uh, is missing the boat. The speaker doesn't really have uh, that much influence on those policy priorities in, in you know one way to look at it is that those the, that speaker agrees with and embodies those policy priorities already so uh, so having one or another party in the majority is just a ratification of those policy priorities I hope that isn't too prolix but you know it, it's the speaker himself herself doesn't matter as much as the the, the party that put them there uh, I think to put it that way Um uh, and, you know, beyond that, the, you know, the only constitutional duties of the speaker are really to run the House fairly. And uh, as long as the speaker does that, uh, he or she is uh, is doing their job. Um, I wanted to ask another shutdown question. I mean, there have been mm -hmm. uh, six government shutdowns since 1978 that lasted five days or more. Uh, and S&P 500 gained in the four most recent shutdowns. <laughs> um, so there is a view based on this history that markets can get through them. I um, mean, I was wondering, um, what's your take? I mean, how much should investors pay attention to shutdowns? Uh, I think they should, but not for uh, but not for those reasons. I, you know, a lot of the you know, general market performance gets bandied about here. Uh, markets have gotten used to the idea that this is all political show, uh, you know, uh, showmanship uh, rather than anything substantive. Uh, what I'm always what I'm concerned about in the current situation is that. You, you end up with a situation where there may be bigger market impacts uh, because markets all of a sudden become concerned during a shutdown about uh, different sectors or industries that might be disproportionately affected. Uh, the, the two examples that I've used uh, so far have been defense, where there's a, you know, if you have a shutdown, there's going to be in, in a world where you're talking about 
about shrinking the, uh, the size of, uh, of government to some extent. There's going to be real questions in the market about whether or not defense spending is going to go up, and if so, where that defense spending is going to go. Uh, and you know, markets assume that that's all going to come out in the end. And I think you know, one uh, uh, one fruit of the uh, the current Israeli-Hamas uh, situation is that uh, there will, there's even a larger presumption that U.S. defense spending will continue to go up. Uh, but if there's a shutdown, that confidence might get rocked to some extent. So that's a problem. Uh, the other one is healthcare, where uh, if there's a, if there's some kind of uh, dispute over the amount and kind of healthcare spending, uh, you know, parts of that sector, and that's one fifth of the economy. So part parts of that sector, uh, you know, might get rocked as well. So I think this time is is somewhat different uh, than the last uh, the last times that markets have been looking at. Um, okay. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, I mean, how do you think Washington will end up handling aid for Israel and for Ukraine? I mean, what's your, what do you think is most likely once uh, there's some sort of speaker resolution and and when we finally have a, a deal on, on those issues, what do you think that's going to end up looking like? I think it's going to end up looking uh, very broadly uh, like what uh, the president has proposed. Uh, I say very broadly because uh, for two reasons. One is that the, the, you know, I think the Senate's much more important in this than the House. I mean, a lot of people are bringing away that the House being, uh, you know, House, the House's dysfunction is really making things harder to uh, to resolve. Uh, you know, need to look at the calendar a little bit. Uh, you know, what you've got here is a situation where the Senate's not even going to take this up in, in, uh, in earnest until next week at the earliest. Uh, and the Senate imprint will be much, uh, strong, much stronger uh, on what happens than the House. I also say generally because the leaders in the Senate, uh, Democratic leader Schumer, Republican leader McConnell, have both said that they're generally in favor of the, both the president's priorities and the president's worldview in this, which is the, you know, all these conflicts are really uh, part of a bro you know, single broader conflict. Uh, McConnell uh, is, is always particularly interesting here because uh, McConnell's very precise uh, in his language and he uh, he made a point on Sunday in a couple of interviews to say he was generally in favor of that but that uh, and I'm paraphrasing here but you know the Senate would take a close look and the Senate would uh, you know kind of comb through this and uh, and you know maybe put their uh, their own imprint on this which is all Washington speak for you know we're going to tear this apart and you know kind of do it our way <laughs> so um, I would expect the Senate debate over the succeeding weeks to have a much a much bigger impact and that the House, uh, you know, in, in part because of the situation and in part because they've made themselves irrelevant, thanks to all this uh, uh, the kabuki theater, uh, has put itself in the uh, in the position of being not much more than a rubber stamp on a lot of this stuff. But I do think in the end you get uh, you get very substantial Ukraine aid and in the end you get very substantial Israeli aid. Uh, as well as uh, as well as border aid, that's the those are really the three legs of the stool here. Uh, but you know everybody is going to see everybody in both parties is going to see an opportunity uh, to kind of pick apart policy and, and reassemble it uh, as they would like it a little bit better. Nowhere is that a bigger issue uh, than Biden administration border policy. Uh, and since the president himself has packaged these things as something that all need to go together, uh, what markets are going to see 
is uh, I think, frankly, between now and you know, pretty much the end of the year, uh, you're going to see Congress wrangling around about exactly how those three uh, those three legs of the stool uh, get put together and exactly what that aid looks like. In the end, all three things end up happening, uh, but uh, they are not going to be at all precisely what the president wants. The Senate feels empowered in, in, in part for that reason. It has to go through the Senate, of course. The Senate also feels empowered because the president really doesn't have any uh, the, any political capital to use to force senators in his direction. Uh, so, you know, what we have here is a situation where I think the Senate really controls the ball even more than as usual. Okay. Um, well, you mentioned President Biden. I wanted to ask about uh, elections next year, control of the White House, uh, the yeah. Senate, the House will be up for grabs. Uh, what's your outlook right now for, for the 2024 elections in terms of how will things shake out for those, um, those bodies? Uh, well, I think uh, I think what you're likely to see here, and this is you know very much with a year plus out, very much kind of you know back of the envelope. But I think what you're likelier than not to see is you know I had Biden squeaking through uh, in 2020, and I think I used the word squeaking through, um, and I think he squeaks through again this time uh, in with a bigger unknown, which is the potential that a third party race, uh, whether it be from Bob Kennedy or somebody else, uh, upends some of the uh, electoral calculations. Uh, but I do think uh, Biden has the upper hand for all the real concerns that the public has about uh, the president's abilities and facilities. Uh, I think uh after another year of uh, yet another year of the Trump show, I end up thinking that uh, uh, people gingerly pull the lever uh, uh, more for Biden and rather less for Trump, even than they did the last time. Uh, I, you know, and the two other things, I would look for a marginally Democratic House the next time out. What you've got is uh, my observation today is you've got a majority of you know four or five uh, depending on vacancies and the like and uh, and that majority exists not because of uh, you know the Matt Gates style purists uh, that majority exists because of uh, of folks who are centrists uh, who who ran and won in New Jersey and New York uh, places like that then you know relatively blue states that uh, that Biden did did and will again do well in uh, the the house the current house drama makes it harder for them. Uh, it doesn't make it uh, insoluble, but it makes it harder for them. Uh, and you know, conversely, though, the Senate. Uh, if you look at the Senate uh, uh, map, uh, it's poised for a lot of the folks who are kind of Democratic centrists uh, to uh, to have a harder time in the next cycle. And I'd say today, if you make me bet. Uh, that the Senate would end up being marginally uh, marginally Republican. The net net of that, though, and I'll stop here, is that you know people always mistake majorities for control. And you know if there's one thing that the the House uh, the kerfuffle shows you is that majorities don't equal control uh, of anything. Uh, and you know the you don't have control in the Senate at all unless you have 60 votes on pretty much anything. And uh, that's true of Democrats today, and it's going to be true if Republicans take the chamber next year. So you're still going to have, uh, after 2024, a very, uh, you know, split down the middle sort of country that is going to be, you know, that, that you know, absent something that uh, some real world catastrophe that, that, that throws the checkers up off the table and scatters everything. 
that that's still going to be kind of right down the middle and uh, and where you're going to see policy change is very difficult to achieve. Okay, great. So a uh, White House staying Democratic, uh, House switching Democratic, uh, but still divided government because the Senate will be a Republican. Uh, yeah, the, the great yeah, but the great uh, the great part of what I do is that you know, like Lord Keynes, uh, you know, I change my mind every time the facts change. So <laughs> as facts as facts come together, I might you know I might well change. And you know, today I've I've said and I've, you know as, as you know I've said on, on Marco Watch's pages that uh, I think Trump is is somewhat less likely to be president than uh, than, than most of the media thinks. Uh, he's still the front runner, but uh, you know we don't elect pres we don't elect presidents on national beauty polls at any point in the process, whether it be the primaries or the generals. So, uh, you know, yes, he's still the front runner, but uh, you know, circumstances we got a long way to go where circumstances could uh, knock things around. Definitely. Um. So let's get to a, a listener question. This is Michael. Um. And it's back on the House drama. Uh, he's just <laughs> asking why is it so difficult to select an individual by the party with the majority and move on. Um, it comes across as so dysfunctional, which we do not need more of. I mean, it's just this um, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. amazement with why this has been such a difficult process more than three yeah. weeks now. Um, what, oh, what's sure. your response? Oh, sure. Uh, Michael, thanks. Uh, I guess the how, what I would say to you is that uh, uh, you and anybody else is that you know, stop thinking of political parties as parties and think about them as, as having factions, uh, and that will help. Uh, there are at least four uh, four factions in the Congress, and there have been for quite a long time. From left to right, they are uh, progressive Democrats, centrist Democrats, centrist Republicans, and and conservative Republicans. And you know, like the you know, the Gates faction in particular, I will call the purist faction. You know, people who you know want it all their own way. And they have, you know, Democrats have people like that too. So, uh, but there's that. But so the this is not a matter of getting a political party to a, a, a arrive at one uh, one candidate. It's a matter of getting all these factions together to, to unify behind somebody. You saw McCarthy barely able to do that, and been having Kevin had been in the, in the Congress for uh, 16, 18 years, and had been a member of the the leadership team for probably half of that. Uh, so, you know, what you have is you've got these factions who are who who don't agree on a lot. Uh, centrists, for example, are fine with say more government spending, whereas the purists. Very much want to make a big show out of uh, uh, out of making some cut, some cuts to the government that that sort of thing. Uh, those issues all get kind of balled up in uh, and in opposing within the conference uh, what kind of speaker they will have, what kind of priorities the party should have. So what you're seeing is really a uh, a kind of breakdown on the uh, on the parties. Uh, one you know one really good example of this is uh, kind of the foreign policy stuff we've been talking about before. Uh, Republicans have some splits on Ukraine. I would say to you that there's uh, out of the uh, 200 odd uh, Republican members in the House, uh, there's probably at the most 50 and generally, I think, probably a lot less uh, who would be against Ukraine aid. But there are people who are against Ukraine aid. Uh, and, and, you know, my read of their situation is they're making a big show out of saying no aid for Ukraine. We'd like to do more more for our southern border. Uh Fair enough, but 
that's you know that's the position. But there are splits within the Republican Party. There are splits in the Democratic Party that you've seen come out in the last week or so about uh, you know views on Israel versus Hamas, Israel versus Palestinians. Uh, you know, some of that will get uh, will show up again in public in the debates over Israel aid. Uh, and uh, the nature of humanitarian aid to Gaza, the, the amount of humanitarian aid to Gaza, how we make sure and keep the, uh, the, that money out of Hamas, uh, all those sorts of things. But there's splits in the Democratic Party on that as well. There's splits between Democratic centrists and progressives on uh, you know, where money should be spent and how, whether it be for health care or, uh, or green priorities or anything else. Uh, but look at these people, look at these people as occupying factions uh, within their political parties. And, uh, you know, it won't make you happier, but at least it'll, at least you'll see it a little bit more clearly. OK, um, well, we're running out of time, so maybe I'll just do one last question from viewers. Okay. I'll kind of combine a couple. Uh, we'll make it sort of a wild card question to, to give you a tough time. Um, the uh, Kathleen is asking if you think there's going to be any changes for Social Security and Medicare benefits. And then similarly, Ray is asking, do you think there'll be anything for artificial intelligence? Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there's a sense there that I feel like there's a real sense that not much is going to change for Social Security and Medicare and, and not much will change for artificial intelligence either. But um, uh, we have listeners asking about that. I was wondering, um, you know, what do you think? Is there something on the horizon that that might actually um, get enacted on in those ver two very different areas. It would not surprise me. I agree with your your assessment on Social Security, and Medicare, and at the same time, I will say that uh, you know, anytime uh, you've got uh, supplementals on the table and you've got continuing resolutions and the like on the table, uh, it you know, people feel empowered to get things that they otherwise might not get in the regular process. So it wouldn't surprise me a bit to see centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans alike kind of agitating to, to get a little bit more for Social Security and Medicare than they otherwise might get. Uh, so, you know, the bottom line is, uh, Kathleen, is that I think nothing goes down, but there may be a question of how much stuff goes up. Uh, you know, I wouldn't look at it as forward to be a huge change, but, you know, there may be a little bit of a, 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 an additional splash benefit here that comes in the next few months. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, I insert cheap political joke here, first of all. There's, you know, a lot of lot of them that I could use, and I won't use any of them. Uh, the other thing I would say to you is is that they're they're nowhere near. I'll tell you, say two things: they're nowhere near ready, understanding what they need to do, how they need to do it, on uh, on AI at all. Number one, number two, what they have done so far is largely identify the players that might be politically active, and not to be too cynical, but to be realistic about it, you know, might actually uh, want to uh, want to contribute. Uh, to politicians or to the parties and uh, and and to try to help shape AI policy. But I wouldn't look for anything substantial on AI uh, anytime soon, frankly. Okay, great. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for okay. being here, Terry. Um, uh, we hope everybody listens to our next episode tomorrow. It'll be Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Ewell, and Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Sabitz. Uh, they'll be discussing the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening today. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.